And now, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter. We will be looking this morning at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. I would ask that you would pay particular attention to this passage as it is one of the most significant in all of the scriptures. Hear now the very word of God. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would open up your word to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, illuminate our minds, make clear to us your truth that we might see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be driven to Him, that we might embrace Him by faith. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come here now this morning to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. This passage is not exactly at the center of the book of Romans. It isn't, by word count, at the center of our Bible. But thematically, this is the center of our theology of the Bible. It is at the heart of the gospel. It tells us our great need for Jesus. 
it tells us of the great provision in Jesus. And it tells us of the great choice that is before us because there are only two ways. We can either be in Adam or we can be in Jesus. There's no third country. There's no third place. There's no other option. There's no negotiating, no matter how good our negotiating skills are. There is only Adam or Christ. And so this text comes to us this morning to help to explain to us the universality of sin. Paul has told us previously that everyone is under sin. And he goes to great lengths to show us that every person is accountable to God. Because no one does any good. And that everyone is under judgment. Now you remember he went through all sorts of people as he described the effects of sin. It is not just those who live without a care for God or His law, but it's also those who try to do good. And it's even those who know God's law and try to keep it. All of them sin. And so we might ask, why can no one escape sin? Couldn't it be possible to escape sin? And as he has been doing for us throughout this book, Paul says to us, I'm glad you've asked that question. Let me explain it to you. And the explanation is found in our union. First, in our union with Adam. And then second, the solution is found in our union with Christ. And then third, we are shown in this text that there can be only one. Union with Adam, union with Christ. And there can be only one. Well, let's begin then to dive into this significant text. Now, Paul not only wants us to see that everyone has sinned, he wants us to see that all will sin. I can tell you with great confidence that the grandchildren that I hope to have someday will be sinners. That the great-grandchildren that I hope to have someday, should the Lord tarry, will be sinners. That everyone that you will meet, everyone who will be born, will be a sinner. And Paul describes this to show and explain our great need for Christ, especially in the beginning of chapter 5, but even from chapter 3, verse 21 following. And so we have and we need reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul describes in verse 11. And this is why. You see it, don't you? At the beginning of verse 12. It's one of our favorite words in the Bible. Therefore. And when we see the therefore, what do we do? We look back to see what the therefore is there for. And so what Paul is doing is he is explaining to us why we need to be reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that it's not arbitrary, that there's not some fancy, that it's not just something that God has made up, but that there is a distinct reason that reconciliation comes only through Christ and that everyone needs that reconciliation. To show this, Paul shows the root of our problem. And he shows the root of our solution. You see, 
Our sin is not the root of the problem. The problem goes deeper than our individual sins. And so if we have thoughts of trying to reform our lives and to get rid of the sin in our lives, to clear out, we still don't have the solution. It would be like going in your yard in where the bushes are and the mulch and seeing the weeds pop up and getting scissors and cutting the weeds off at the surface. What will happen in about a week? They're going to come right back because you haven't dealt with the root. Paul wants you to see the root of the problem. And so he begins with the ruin of mankind in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now he starts with a comparison, but he doesn't finish it. I don't know if you've been catching on to this. We've seen this a few times now in the book of Romans. We see it in other letters that Paul has written. He begins a statement, a comparison, an analogy, and he gets so excited, so worked up, or he figures out that you need to know more about the analogy before he can complete it, that he stops in the middle. That's why in most of our translated Bibles, the end of verse 12 is a dash. Because Paul hasn't finished what he started. There is a just as in verse 12, but there's no so then. You know, just as this happened, so then that will happen. Paul doesn't get there yet. Now, be patient, he will, later in our passage. But he is describing for us the ruin that comes to all humanity, and it comes through the sin of Adam. Now, there is an assumption behind verse 12 that we must make explicit. And that is that the world was created good and without sin. That's why Paul says that sin came into the world. The world was created good and without sin. It was not there before. But at the same time, Paul is not going back beyond Genesis. In Genesis, God created the world and pronounced it good. And he is focused on the effect of sin on mankind. And so when he says in the world, he means within the sphere of humanity. He's not beginning with Satan and his fall or with the fallen angels. He starts with the world we know, with what matters to us, because after all, this is a therefore passage. He's trying to explain to us what it is about redemption. Adam and Eve were created Happy and holy, to borrow a phrase from the children's catechism. What changed for them? Now, this shouldn't be hard for us to understand that there is sin in the world. We see misery, we see pain, we see evil all around us. Did God create the world this way? How did this come about? It comes... Paul says, through one man and his act of rebellion against God. (coughs) We read of this in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam is the fountain of all mankind. He is the first of all people. He is the one to whom God gave the commandment. Now, we even understand this from Adam's name. Did you ever know how Adam got his name? Adam was named by God. You know, you name your children, you name them after a relative or after perhaps a hero from history, or maybe in your language the name means something. 
The name Adam means something too. In Hebrew, it means mankind. The word for mankind and the name Adam are the same word. Now, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That the one who is the beginning of all mankind would be named mankind. Everyone is related to Adam. As I look out here in our congregation, I see very different kinds of faces from very different places in the world. But one thing I can tell you with all certainty is that we all have the same first father. It doesn't matter what you look like, how you speak, where you grew up, what kind of food you like. Every single one of us has the same first father. Now, why is this important? It's important because it explains the universality of sin. Now, there have been other ways that people have tried to explain the fact that all sin. There was a theologian by the name of Pelagius. And his theory was that everyone stands in exactly the same place as Adam. That is, they're able to do good or they're able to sin. And so each person's death is due to their own personal sin. The problem with this is that no one escapes death. No one has been able not to sin. Now, on one level, it is a helpful explanation. It makes us feel good, I suppose, to know that our judgment and condemnation comes from our own actions rather than from a federal head like Adam. But are we really in the place of Adam? I don't know about you, but I wasn't born in the Garden of Eden. I was born in Buffalo. You know, they say it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. I wasn't born into a perfect family without any sin. I had a good family and we loved each other, but we're Italian. And yelling is one of our natural resources. Can any of us say that we were in the place of Adam? No, of course not. Others think that the problem of sin comes to us through corruption. That is, that Adam polluted the stream of mankind and that all sin is a result of this. That this pollution comes to us, it's sort of Adam's fault and our fault. Adam pollutes us and therefore we sin. But this doesn't fit with the passage. Because one of the things we're going to see is Paul is setting up a parallel between Adam and Jesus. And if we take that parallel seriously, if we say that our sin is a result of Adam's corruption, then we must say that our righteousness is just because of the example of Jesus. And we could do it all on our own. And that's certainly not what Paul says. It's certainly not what he's been saying for the better part of five chapters. Now, what Paul is saying here is that Adam is the federal head of each and every person. Now, what does this mean? The word federal means representative. That's where we get the federal government from. That the federal government is representative of the various state governments. It may be of interest to you to know that when our federal government was founded, it was not to be the big and all-encompassing government that it is now. It was meant to be representative of the rights of the people and the states. So much so that when the Constitution was written, the people did not directly elect their senators. Their state legislators did. It's because it was a federal government. So Adam is our federal and representative head. When he acted, 
He acted as the representative of everyone. God gave Adam the command, and Adam was to obey or disobey for all. Sin and death came through Adam's one sin, and that sin spread throughout the world. Now look at why it spread. Verse 12 tells us, it spread because all sinned. Now let's parse this for a moment. All sinned. Everyone, without exception, sinned. Notice that this is a past tense verb. In the Greek, it is a punctuated past tense. It is something that has happened at a moment in time in the past. It's not continuing. It's punctuated. Now, because is an interesting phrase here. This is not the Greek word for because. It's actually two words, a preposition and a relative pronoun. It literally is translated in him. Well, who's the him? Adam. In him, that is, in Adam, all sinned in the past. That is, every person who has ever lived or who will live with the exception of one sinned when Adam sinned. We do inherit a sinful nature. We are corrupt. That is true. But that is not what condemns us. What condemns us is that we have all sinned. We sinned when Adam sinned. In short, here is an important theological point for you to remember. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are constituted sinners because of the sin of Adam, and our sin flows from that. That's what Paul's explaining here. Now, what this means for you is you can't escape sin. Whether you want to admit it or not, you need Jesus. Because you're already born in sin, just like David says. Even if you tried as hard as you could to be good, you would still be under sin. We sin because we're sinners. Paul then begins to explain what this union with Adam, this solidarity with Adam means. And so he breaks off his analogy to give us some important information. Verses 13 and 14 are kind of a big parenthesis. It's as if Adam says, wait a minute here, I'll finish in just a second, but but let me explain first what I mean in verse 12. His thesis is that in Adam's one sin, all have sinned. But how does he prove this? Well, first, he proves it by showing how sin's judgment comes to everyone. That sin brings condemnation. Now, small words in the Bible are important. Look at verse 13. It begins with the word for. That's Paul's clue to us. It's as if someone says to him, wait, Paul, what do you mean all sinned? And Paul says, let me explain. When I say all sinned, this is what I mean. Now, he says, you might think that sin is a result of the law, that the law is bad, and that if there were no rules to break, we wouldn't break any rules, and we would all be in good shape. That the law is to blame. I think that many of our young people wish that their houses were run like that. If only mom and dad didn't have all these rules, I would never get in trouble. Everything would be good. 
If there were no bedtime, I would never be late for bed. If there were no rules about dinner, I could eat whatever I wanted. It's the rules that are the problem, we say. But Paul says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not that the rules are the problem. Sin was actually in the world before the formal appearance of the law. You remember that God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And there was thunder and lightning. And the Israelites did not even want to approach the mountain lest they die. They said to Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want any part of this. And at the same time, there can be no sin without breaking the law. So what does this mean? It means there must have been a law before the law. That is, before the express command of God. There had to be the command of God before the giving of the law at Sinai. And so Paul specifically chooses this period between Adam and Moses to show the condemnation that comes from sin. He shows us that condemnation comes on all even when they didn't sin like Adam. Now, when Paul says sin after the transgression of Adam or like the transgression of Adam, he doesn't mean sin comes on you even if you didn't eat a fruit. That's not what he means. He says condemnation comes on you even if you did not sin against the expressed, revealed will of God. Every single person was and is under judgment. Not first and primarily because of their own sin, but because of Adam's sin. Now we see this truth in the second thing that Paul shows. Everyone tastes the consequence of sin and its condemnation. That is death. All of mankind did not repeat Adam's sin. There is no more fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet, Paul says in verse 14, it's the strongest possible adversative that you can use in Greek. Yet, death reigned from Adam until the formal giving of the law to Moses. Now, Paul is not speculating. He's not inventing something here. He's, this is clearly laid out in the scriptures. We read of the death of every single person, even Adam, even though he lived for 930 years. It's most clearly set forth in Genesis chapter 5. You read over and over again, and he died. This man lived, and he lived so many years, and he died. And then this man lived, and he begat children, and he died. And this man lived, and he begat children, and he died. Over and over again, no matter how long the life they lived, no matter how good the person was... Death comes to everyone. But we also see that from our own observation, don't we? How many people do you know that have not died? How many escape death? None. It's inevitable. Now, what do we say? We say nothing is certain in life. But what? Death and taxes. Now, let me tell you, you just talked to an accountant. Taxes are much less certain than death. The way that Congress changes what they're going to tax and not tax and what they're going to do and not do throws accountants for a loop as they try to apply the law that Congress hasn't written yet or that applies retroactively. The one thing that is certain in life is death. Death comes to everyone. Even those whose sin was not like Adam. Now, think about one example of this. 
infants. Infants die, don't they? Now, this is a tragedy. It's not something that we long to see. It's, praise to the Lord, not a common occurrence in our nation. But infants die. And you can't say that an infant sinned after the way of Adam. You can't say an infant sinned against the expressed, revealed command of God and chose to rebel against Him because it's an infant. They don't know language. They don't know about law. They don't even really know about sin, and yet they experience death. We have another example as well. All those who have never received special revelation. There are some who do not transgress the specially revealed commandment of God because it has never been brought to them. But it's enough that they know that there is a creator and that they do not honor him as they should. Death still reigns among those who do not have the revealed will and law of God. What Paul is saying here is there is no no explanation for the universality of sin Condemnation and death, except mankind's solidarity with Adam. Now, why is it important for Paul to prove this point? It actually doesn't seem very fair, does it? Why am I responsible for the actions of a man thousands of years ago? One answer might be that that God has established this. He's the creator. He set the terms with Adam. He made Adam the federal head of all mankind. Someone had to be first, and it was Adam. We might say, well, Adam was in the best position to obey. He was unfallen. He had no environmental problem, nature. He had no family problems, nurture. If anyone in all of history could have obeyed, it would have been Adam. Now, think of it this way. If your life depended on sinking a three-point basket, who do you want to take that shot? Do you want me to take that shot? I don't think so. Do you want to take that shot? Or let's say I could get Steph Curry to take that shot. Or Michael Jordan. Or someone who's a professional, someone who has the best chance. You would choose that, wouldn't you? How about if I asked you to take a complex calculus exam and your life depends on passing? Who do you want to sit at that exam table? I know you don't want me. I'll tell you that right now. I don't think you want yourself either. I think what you want is the greatest calculus mastermind in all of the world. That's who you'd want to take that test. Now, you see, it's important for Paul to prove that our sin comes from union with Adam for a more important reason. It's so Paul can show us our union, not just with Adam, but our union with Christ. That the grace of God is greater than our sin. Paul says that Adam is our head because he is, in verse 14, the type of the one who was to come. Now, this word type is a very interesting word. It means pattern. It means example. It's, it refers to the impression left by an object that is heavy 
upon something that is of lighter weight. It is, now kids, you're just going to have to trust me here because I'm going to talk about something magic that you've never seen. It's like a typewriter. You know, it used to be before we had computers and printers and word processors, you banged on keys. And if you made a mistake, you were in trouble because you couldn't hit backspace delete. You had to start all over. How does a typewriter work? Well, you press the key for T, and the key springs up and hits the paper and leaves the impression of a T. That's what a type is like. It's the impression left by something else that reveals what the something else is. And that's what Adam is, Paul says. He is a type of the one to come. Now, who is the one to come? The one to come is Jesus. What Paul says is our solidity with Adam prefigures our solidarity with Christ. And so Paul now turns to Jesus. And he begins with a contrast in verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. And we see that what he is doing here is because he is showing how much greater Jesus is than Adam. He is assuming a parallel. When he says this is not like that, he's not saying forget my analogy. What he's saying is there is an analogy, there is a parallel, but it's not perfect. It's shadow and substance. It's like a sampler that you get in Costco. You walk through the aisles and they give you a little sample of something. Now that's not a meal, is it? I suppose you might hang around and try to eat about a hundred of those samples and make a meal out of it, but that's not a meal. It's a sample of what the meal would be, and the meal is so much greater, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying. That's where the difference is. Jesus is so much greater than Adam. One man's trespass brought death to many. That is, more than just to him. It's not that some people escape death. Paul doesn't mean many as opposed to all. Paul means many as in a whole big bunch. But the free gift brings a grace that is greater than our sin. And so Paul emphasizes this free gift. He actually uses three Greek words in verses 15, 16, and 17 for this English phrase, free gift. Now, they're not radically different words, but it shows that Paul is describing the extent and the wonder of this gift. It's like he's trying to pull out every word in his vocabulary to tell you how great this free gift is. He says that the grace of God has brought much more to many and that the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded. Now, abounded means more than just what I need. It means provided in abundance more than is needed. And so this causes us to rejoice. Just like the hymn, grace that is greater than all our sin. And this hymn, as we think about it, is actually helpful because it summarizes what Paul says in verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for if for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see, grace overcomes all our sin. All the sin that follows the sin of Adam. Now remember, We sin because we're sinners. That means we continue to sin. 
And the free gift of God is of such a nature that it takes into account these many trespasses. It could not be a free gift to justification otherwise. This is the essential characteristic of the free gift. It brings justification. How can it do that? How does grace justify? How does it wipe out the sentence of condemnation we are under because of our sin in Adam? Well, the grace of God brings the righteousness of Christ to us. Just as Adam brought us sin and death, Jesus brings us righteousness and life. Condemnation is the divine sentence that is pronounced on sin. Condemnation is the result of our guilt, of our transgression, of our rebellion. When Adam rebelled, we rebelled. Remember when we said that was unfair? Now Paul answers why Adam was the type of Jesus. When Jesus obeyed the law, you obeyed the law. When Jesus was righteous, you were counted righteous. When Jesus earned the smile of his Father, you earned the smile of your heavenly Father. The same kind of union that we have with Adam is available to us with Christ. Our only hope is this union with Christ, receiving what he has earned. This righteousness is ours despite the abounding of our sin. Grace abounds even more from Jesus. Are you here today thinking that your life is a mess? That you can never clean it up? Are you here today discouraged? Downcast? You don't see a way out? Well, God has provided a way in Jesus. You don't need to work your way out of the mess. All you need to have is Jesus. And Jesus can be yours, Paul says, just by believing. Remember that this passage is a therefore to the beginning of this chapter. Jesus brings righteousness to us. Paul then moves on to how grace brings us eternal life. Now he was very clear about what Adam's sin brought. Death. We can't miss the truth of that. We see it all the time. It nips at our heels. We wish we could make it go away, but we can't. Paul uses a vivid image. He says, death reigned over all. It has a rule and a control over us. And now again, he compares the work of Jesus with the work of Adam. Just as Adam's sin brought a multitude of sins, the grace of God abounded to many to wipe out many sins. So it is the same with life. Death reigns because of Adam's trespass. But much more, this abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigns through Jesus. How does it reign? Paul says, in life. Jesus undoes the sentence of death and he brings life. Now this makes sense because death is the result of the sentence of condemnation. And the grace of God in Christ undoes this condemnation and it brings righteousness instead. So death cannot follow us. What we need to see here is the same type of relationship we have with Adam 
is what can be ours in Jesus when we believe. We don't need to do. Jesus has done. Do you ever wonder why believing is enough? Why does God accept us just believing? He accepts it because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are united with Jesus by faith, and then all that is His is ours. Nothing more is needed. Adam brings death, and Christ brings life. How are you saved? How can you have eternal life? Is it by works? Yes, just not yours. The works of Jesus. That is how we have life. It is by being in Christ, we have all that is Christ, all that He has done is counted to our account. Stop looking for life in all the wrong places. You'll find it only in Jesus. One final point in conclusion. This passage centers around the comparison of Adam and Jesus. All of the Bible is understood in this context. What is our great hope? Isn't it the resurrection? Didn't we talk about that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4? Well, we can only understand the resurrection when we see that Christ is the second Adam, the greater Adam, the one in whom all are made alive. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is our hope. There can be only one. You are either in Adam, and then you have sin, condemnation, and death. Or you are in Christ, and then you have obedience, righteousness, and life. There is no middle ground for you to find. Now this is crucial. Because if you are in Adam today, you have nothing to look forward to but death and judgment. Paul says that God wants us to see that. It's actually why he gave the law. Paul says that the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, this sounds odd, doesn't it? Why would God want to increase sin? Why would the law's purpose be to make more sin? And the answer is that God wants us to see what the reign of sin looks like. It is hopeless. It brings death. The hallmark of sin's rule and reign is death. It is clear to us what the end of sin is. The reign of sin is death and judgment. But what about the reign of grace? What happens when grace comes in? Paul gives us great hope in verse 20. Sin is horrible. Sin abounds and seems to overwhelm us in our world, doesn't it? So often it's the case that sin overwhelms us. But the more that sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. Now, this phrase is interesting because it's actually only one word in the text. It means to exist in superabundance or to be supplied in great excess. It 
describes the type of astonishment that people had when they saw the miracles of Jesus. They were astonished beyond all imagining. That's what grace is like. The reign of sin cannot stop the reign of grace. Sin is no match for grace. This is the good news of the gospel. Do you remember last week when I said, you're not as bad as you think you are? And I said, cheer up, you're worse. The reason you can cheer up is because you can never be too bad for grace. You can never be beyond the reach of grace. So what does this reign of grace look like? Paul tells us in verse 21. Just as the hallmark of sin was death, the hallmark of grace is righteousness leading to eternal life. You have a choice today. You have only one choice. You cannot pick a third way. There is either Adam or there is Jesus. There is either sin or there is righteousness. There is either death or there is life. Now is the time of choosing. Today is the day of salvation. Will you be found in Jesus? Will you have all that is His? It can be yours. By faith alone. By faith alone we are united to Christ. And all that is Christ is ours. And we have righteousness, obedience, and life. Let's pray.